Well, this morning we are going to continue on with our series in John. Uh, we've been going through this now for, this is week six. So um, last week, uh, obviously, uh, thanks to Pastor Hunter for filling in, he uh, tackled the first part of chapter five. And so we will be in chapter six this morning. I'm going to warn you ahead of time. This is the longest chapter in John. We're going to try to get through all of it. So Go ahead and kind of do this with your fingers, get them ready. Go ahead and get your Bibles out. We're going to be flipping through kind of quickly today, but hopefully covering um, as much as this as we can. There will be moments where I'm going to have to just kind of summarize, but I also would say to you, uh, man, maybe you'll feel differently than I did, but this this is a convicting sermon. There's There's things in here just from Jesus that he says and does and the things we see today that I think they're going to challenge us. I think they're going to be moments for us to just be honest with ourselves and see if it doesn't really kind of stick out as like, wow, man, um, that's a lot for me to think about. And so go ahead and say a prayer now. God, just open up my heart, my mind, and um, prepare me and, and speak to me whatever way that you have for me. So we'll get to John 6 here in just um, just a minute. I want to, I want to kind of go through this because, uh, again, we, we, if you were here last week, if you weren't, you missed all of that. But Hunter did a great job of talking about the, the lame man that was at the pool of Bethesda. We, we saw that Jesus heals him on the Sabbath, right? He picks up a mat like Jesus told him to. He's walking around. 38 years this man had been disabled, and then all of a sudden he's walking around, and all the Pharisees care about, which the big part of the story should have been, holy cow, 38 years and dude's walking around. This is amazing. But of course the Pharisees didn't feel that way. All they're concerned about is this guy's walking around on the Sabbath with the mat and he's been, and Jesus healed on the Sabbath. And that's what they're concerned about. You're doing this work on the Sabbath. And so they missed the entire point of what was happening, what Jesus was doing. Um, again, this is, this is pretty much par for the course for them. Um, and so we're going to see now be, they don't like Jesus, especially in, Jeru- in and around Jerusalem with the Pharisees. His ministry is very much ramping up to the point where they're like, we're going to kill this guy. We're done with this guy. We need to kill him. We need to do away with him. Matter of fact, you don't have to turn, because you're probably already at John 6, hopefully. You don't have to turn there. I'm just going to read two verses um, from chapter 5 that just kind of show us where their, their hearts were with Jesus. Uh, verses 15, or 16 through 18 says, So... Because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, my father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Uh, Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father and making himself equal with God. So the hate for Jesus has Definitely now it's peaking at this very uh, high level. As a matter of fact, the rest of chapter 5, if you hopefully will read that on your own, there's 28 verses there uh, that Jesus is continuing to claim to be God. He's not going to pull any punches. He's not going to try to beat around the bush. He just claims to be God. He supports that claim, and he calls out the Pharisees even more on their ignorance when it comes to who he is and what's happening before their very eyes. So at the very least, Jesus' ministry has already caused quite a stir, again, especially there in and around Jerusalem. Um, where we're going to pick up today in chapter 6, we're going to see now him and his disciples are back up north uh, in the Galilee region uh, by the Sea of Galilee. He's about to do what is one of his most famous miracles. 
right? The feeding of the 5,000. You've probably heard of it. If you've been in church at all or around church, you've probably heard that, at least that phrase, the feeding of the 5,000. It's an incredible miracle. It's the only miracle that is mentioned in all four gospels, um, probably for the same type of reason. It's Pretty incredible miracle, pretty crazy thing that happened. And so, though it's in all four Gospels, to me, that's pretty great. I think what's kind of even more interesting to me is only in John's Gospel do we get to read about the sequel. Um, We get to see what happened afterwards. Like, all those people, all that crazy stuff happened. They all got all that food, and there was more left over than what? What happened? Well, John gives us a sequel to to that event, which I'm really excited about getting to in just a few minutes. Before we do... We'll read these first 15 verses of chapter 6 so we can kind of get a little bit of a refresher course. And maybe you have never heard the story before of the feeding of the 5,000 and what happened. So let's read it. Then I want to talk about that just briefly, and then we'll continue on uh, with this this chapter 6. This is what it says. It says, Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias, And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside, sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, it would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here's a boy with five small barley loaves, two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. There's plenty of grass in that place. And they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over, uh, yet left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, he withdrew again to a mountain by himself. So, this miracle is called the feeding of the 5,000. You notice in this version, in every version I read, it says men. It, in Jesus' day, don't get offended, ladies, children. Uh, they didn't count you. But when they counted crowds, they only counted the men. So it was 5,000 men, but we know there would have been women and children as well that were present. So this is even more impressive if you look at it by numbers only. And the fact that this is probably more like ten to 15,000 people uh, that Jesus feeds with just this little, very, very small amount of food. Now, it is a complete miracle of God, but there are people who struggle with this miracle. If you study this or you talk to some people, maybe you'll find out that some, uh, they have trouble with this miracle uh, for some reason. They say that, oh, it wasn't really what you think it is. What happened was, the miracle was that Jesus caused everybody to be so generous that they all just shared the food they had amongst them. That's how they were all able to be fed. It wasn't really, you know, like some people are saying it is. But we all know from reading the Bible, that's not what the scripture tells us at all. And why people, especially believers, struggle to believe this miracle is beyond me. Because in my opinion, if you can believe Genesis chapter 1, you can believe John chapter 6. Amen? 
Amen. If you, if you can believe that Jesus created the world by speaking it into existence, pretty sure he can feed 10, 15,000 people. Not a big deal to him. Um, and so why people struggle with this, again, especially believers, I'm not really sure. Uh, we have to understand that God works in miraculous, supernatural ways that defy natural law. He, he is, while he was human, he is also God. So we should be okay with this. Understand, though it's going to blow our minds when he does some of these things, this is who he is. This is the God we worship. Um, this is definitely easy for him to, to accomplish. And so since I preached on this miracle, if you've been with us about a month and a half ago, <clears throat> I'm going to focus more on the, what I mentioned earlier, the sequel to the feeding of the 5,000 that only John records. Um, but I'll, uh, there's a little bit of a segue here from verses 15 to 21. And so I'm going to kind of summarize those verses. Then we're going to jump into verse 22 of the segue, um, or the sequel of this, of this feeding of the 5,000. Uh, so between this miracle and what we're about to see as the sequel, there's a, some stuff that happens that's pretty crazy as well. After the incredible miracle, uh, Jesus is realizing they're wanting to make him king literally by force. It's not time for that. It's not even what he came for at this moment. And so he's like, nope, this isn't happening. So he slips away, ends up going up on a mountainside to disconnect, to rest, to recharge. And so while he's gone, the disciples decide to get in a boat, go across the Sea of Galilee, up towards the northern part of the Sea of Galilee, which again was towards Capernaum, which was where Jesus kind of had set up his his headquarters for, for ministry. So they're, they're headed up there. Jesus is up on a mountainside, and all of a sudden this storm kind of comes up on the Sea of Galilee, which uh, whenever we visited Israel a couple different times, I've been able to be on the Sea of Galilee. They'll always tell you that's actually very common, just the way that the, the geography is there. It's very easy for a storm to blow up out of nowhere, and all of a sudden you're, you find yourself in a very dangerous situation on this, uh, on this sea. And so that's where they found themselves. And uh, there's, I'm sure it's at night. We know that they're, they're probably scared. You know, like we got to get across this thing. We know they're about three, three and a half miles out already. So all of a sudden, is it not only is it night and the weather's crazy and we got to get across here, but all of a sudden they look up and they see what they think is kind of a ghost. There's something walking towards them. Looks like possibly a person, but they're, they're walking on water. Um, to us, we've heard the story, but to them, this is the first time it ever happened in history. So they're getting experience of like, what is going on? Um, and Jesus does them a favor by telling them who he is, like, hey, it's me. And so they realize who it is. Matt, John doesn't record it. Matthew records that this is also where Peter steps out of the boat, remember? And he walks on water, at least for a little bit, before he falls uh, into the water because he takes his eyes off of Jesus. And so, and then Jesus gets in the boat, and the, uh, the water's calmed down. So there's, there's all this craziness that's kind of going on here um, in a very short amount of time. But... What I want you to see is, even in verse 21, there's another miracle here, um, at least I see it as a miracle, that I don't think is talked about very much, or maybe it's missed, I don't know. But verse 21 says that then they were willing to take him into the boat, Jesus into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. So again, he's just fed 5,000, well, 10, 15,000 people with a little bit of bread and fish. They've watched him walk on water. Peter's walked on water. He stepped into the boat. The storm is calmed. And now, immediately, they're transported to the shore. The, if the disciples at this moment had to be like, what the heck, y'all? This is crazy. Like, we're getting to be a part of all these miracles, these crazy things that are happening. He, he is the Son of God. He, he's, he is God in the flesh. This is, 
This has got to be a crazy, crazy moment for these disciples as they spend it with Jesus. But nonetheless, they are docked here in Capernaum. Now the next morning, we get to see. Here's the, the, the sequel. These 5,000, well, 10, 15,000 people wake up, right? And they start looking around like, whoa, wait a minute. Where's Jesus? Like, I know he kind of, we thought he just slipped away for a little bit, but come back. Where's Jesus? And where's the disciples? What's going on? Um, and they're kind of a little, I don't know, freaked out a little bit probably like, wait, we got to find Jesus. And so this is what we find as we pick it up in, in verse chapter or verse, chapter 6, verse 24. Let's read 24 through 29. It says, once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into boats and went uh, to Capernaum uh, in search of Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? And Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and you had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but work, but, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has placed the seal of approval. Then they ask him, what must we do to do the works God requires? Again, they're, they're, it's all about works. This is, again, another one of these moments where I don't have time to, to really spend it here, but it, salvation is not by works, church. It's not about what we do. We don't get to earn it. And Jesus is another one of those moments. It's just we're so, as people, it's like we're driven by that. What do I got to do? Tell me all the things I got to do, and then I'll do those things, and then I'll, in a sense, save myself by doing these things. And verse 29, Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So this is the sequel to the feeding again. They wake up. It's breakfast. They're hungry. Some of y'all know what this is all about. Some of y'all are married to somebody. You know what this is all about. And they are hungry. And they're probably on the verge of hangry. And like, uh, we need something to eat. So they start looking for Jesus, right? He's the meal prep guy. He's the guy that did this, this huge miracle. So they can't find him. They can't find the disciples. So they think, well, we're going to head to where we know he kind of tends to hang out, which is Capernaum. We're going to get in our boats. We're going to get there. They load up. They get there. They find Jesus. And they want to know, essentially... In so many words, like, why didn't you tell us you were leaving? Like, how long have you been here, Jesus? Like, wait a minute, what, what the heck? You know, we, you just take off and go up here, and you don't even tell us. It's kind of their, their mindset. And Jesus basically says to them, now this is me paraphrasing, this is not in your Bible, but this is what I feel like Jesus is, is basically saying is, you know, let, let's be honest here. He's, he's talking to them. You know, let's, let's be honest here. You're not looking for me, for me. You're looking for me, for you. I filled your belly with food. And now you're hungry again, and so you're looking for another meal. That's what this is about. That's what Jesus is basically saying to them. Like, listen, let, let's get past all the niceties. We're, we understand where we are here, right? You're hungry. I, I fed you yesterday, and you guys freaked out about that miracle. And so now you're here for another miracle because you want more food. So he's confronting them here because he knew the real motivation for trying to find him. They didn't want Jesus as in what? He was offering spiritually. They wanted Jesus because they knew what he was capable of giving them. And what we're going to see in this chapter is really something really sad. Um, we're, we're going to see that due to the fact that they were so obsessed with their own physical wants and desires, they weren't interested in the spiritual truth that Jesus was offering them. And as a matter of fact, we're going to see that many of these people, literally these people that were just there yesterday, 
for a miracle. They saw this feeding of, the, of what's called feeding of the 5,000. They saw this yesterday. We're going to see that they, many of these are going to end up no longer following Jesus at all. And the reason is because Jesus didn't give them what they wanted and what Jesus was offering they weren't interested in. Now, <clears throat> how I'm going to set this up is as we read through this, we're going to see this downward spiral. And as I read it, I'm going to be asking us some questions, personal questions. And they're questions I want us to, to think about and to mull over in our minds, not just right now, hopefully you will now, but even later today, this week, uh, as we go through this. Because the reality is we at times are no bad, better with our actions than these early followers of Jesus. I know it's quick. We're usually quick to judge these types of people like, what in the world? What horrible people? Why would you do that to Jesus? And if I was there, I wouldn't have done that. Okay, before you get there and you're too judgmental, just hang on a second. So verse 28 through 30, again, it says this. Then, then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, well, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? To me, this is a crazy question, right? I mean, if, you, if you're following and tracking this story, what will you do? Like, what miracle will you perform, Jesus, so we can believe in you? Like, what, what, give us your new latest and trick, your new, do, perform for us. So we can now, okay, the first one, maybe we just didn't catch your slide of hand. Let, let's see, do something else. We need to see a little something else here, Jesus. Just yesterday, he fed thousands of people with five loaves and two fish. I mean, I literally read that and I go, what more do they want? And to me, this question is insulting. But just like us so many times, we have this same attitude of, what have you done for me lately, Jesus? What have you done for me lately? That's the mindset I think so many of us tend to live in, and maybe we don't even recognize it. And that's why this first question I want us to really ponder this week is this. Do I truly appreciate the things that God has already done in my life or do I tend to quickly move on and ask him for the next thing? Are we pausing and being truly thankful for what God has already done in our life? Are we being thankful for the prayers that he's already answered? Or we, was that yesterday? Was that last week? Was that last year? So we got to move on. I read this next question I'm going to give you. Um, last week as I was preparing for this sermon, and to me it was just a sister question to the previous one that I just uh, stated, and it's this. Do I spend more time praying for something that I want than I do praising God for what he's done? How, how is my prayer life? And I'm going to be very, if you go to church here and you're, you know me, I'm just going to be honest and, and transparent. because I feel like it's the only way we can be. Because I'm, I'm just a guy up here. Yes, God's called me to the ministry to preach this, and, and I love to do this, and I love the Lord, and I love to do what I do, but I'm just human, just like you guys. And, and when I think about these things, I have to admit, I'm embarrassed at the, how selfish my prayer life can be, especially lately. If you all know, many of you know where I'm going through right now with this whole diagnosis of cancer and things, and, and how we're going to deal with that, and what the future looks like, and I thought through this even as I was writing this sermon, and it's like, you know, I think back to the first test comes back, and my prayers are, you know, God, please don't let it be cancer. Very selfish prayer, right? And then the second test comes back, and it's God, don't let, let it take my life, Lord. Let it be curable. 
Third test comes back and prayers are more, you know, God, thank you that it's contained, but, but Lord, work a miracle, you know, let it be gone. Um, uh, and if you won't do that, then, you know, God, just make it so, slow growing, the slow growing kind of God. And the reason that I want that, God, is so, you know, it will be much easier for me and the scheduling here at the church and, and, and my vacation that I have planned for, you know, uh, with, with my kids for my 50th birthday and, and Jen and I's 30th anniversary. So, God, if you could work all this out to where, you know, it would just be more convenient if I'm going to have to go through this. And these, I, I think about this, it's like, wow, how selfish I tend to be in my prayer life. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't pray the desires of our hearts. We shouldn't ask God to work miracles. We shouldn't ask God to do things. We should do that. But I had to be honest in, with myself, and it was very convicting of, but Darren, where, where are your prayers for all that God has already done in your life? You know, you're, man, you are intense right now. You are definitely praying a lot more than probably you ever have in your whole entire life. But do you realize that all your prayers, for the most part, are centering around, God, will you do this for me? Will you do this for me? God, what about this? What about that? What about all the stuff he's done? And, and not only that, Darren, but how about, why aren't you praying more like Jesus taught you to pray, which is not my will, but your will be done? Why is it, God, do what I want. God, do what I want. God, do what I want. God, please do what I want. Very convicting for me. I don't know about you, but then, I, church, I just think that our prayer lives tend to become a lot of times, do this, Lord, and do this, Lord, and feed me again, God. I mean, it's the next day. Feed me again. Feed me again. I know what you did yesterday, but I need you to do this now. And we, we just kind of look past the things he's already done. So I want this to challenge us. And let there be a lesson learned here to stop and be more thankful for what he has done instead of always looking for the next miracle, the next want, the next desire. We've got to be careful. Well, this conversation, this group's attitude doesn't get any better toward Jesus. Verses 31 through 34. Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Now they've gone from questioning Jesus to demanding Jesus. And this is where these types of parts of scriptures where it always makes me think, man, Jesus was so patient. <laughs> he was so patient. I mean, we can't imagine, but God in the flesh, you know, he created these people. And now these people are quoting scripture to him. Like, you know, it's like challenging him on, on some things that he's saying as if they're going to teach him a thing or two. And Jesus just tells them basically, listen, I know all about the time in the desert, okay? I was there, actually. I didn't say that, but I know all about that. And by the way, it's not Moses that provided the manna. It was my Father in heaven that provided the manna. And he goes on to try to explain to them that he's the bread of life. And clearly, these people are not understanding that Jesus is talking in spiritual terms. They don't get that. They, of course, they're not even concerned about that. They're, they are all about the physical. They want physical bread. They're hungry. And he's talking about a spiritual bread, a sustenance that is far greater than natural bread or anything um, else that they could ever want or imagine. They're not getting it. They want to be fed physically. And Jesus is telling them, listen, I have a bread for you that will satisfy the deepest hungers of your heart. That's what he's trying to communicate. This is very similar, again, if you've been going through this series with us, to John uh, chapter 4, when the woman, woman at the well, when Jesus talks about the water. He's trying to say, listen, there's something bigger, something better, something we need to be more focused on than you physically getting some bread or some water. Understand who I am and what I'm telling you. And, 
and what you can have through me. But again, they're all, they're desiring, what they're desiring is not a relationship with Jesus. They want a repeat of yesterday. They desire what Jesus is capable of giving them physically. That's all they care about. That's all they want. And I don't think any of us can deny that we have some of this in us. That's why when our prayer lives tend to get ramped up when we need something. I'm just going to leave that there because I feel like some, some of us need to hear that and just let that kind of be in our, our spirit for a minute. Maybe there's some repenting even that we need to all do. So Jesus is now going to try and explain it to them as plainly as he can. This is verses 35 through 40. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of those, none, I should lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my father's will is that everyone who looks to the son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. This is, it's about being saved. This is, this, is, this is salvation that Jesus is talking about. Jesus tells them salvation is through him. And then listen what happens here in verses 41 and 42. It says, at this the Jews there began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread and that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven. I don't know if you're seeing this downward spiral yet or not, but it's falling apart. The wheels are falling off really quickly. If you remember back in verse 14, these same people are marveling at Jesus to the point where they're saying, oh, surely this is the prophet that is to come. And they are even going, Jesus knows their hearts, right? And he said they were, they were going to demand, they were going to physically try to make him king. I mean, they, they think he's all that, right? And now... Here we are in, verses, in verse 41, and they've reduced him down to, isn't this, just, I mean, isn't this just the son of Joseph? I mean, we know this guy. He's just like one of us. How dare he say that he came from God? All of a sudden, everything is just it's spiraling downward. How their tune has changed because Jesus isn't saying and doing what they want. And that brings us to our next question to ponder from this chapter. Do you still worship, obey, and believe Jesus is Lord even when he doesn't do what you want or ask? These are hard questions. I'm not going to lie. Not just for you. So many times that you guys walk out of here, you come talk to me, and you're like, wow, you should have warned me. I could have worn my steel-toed boots or whatever it is. I'm like, listen, dude, you got to hear it one time. i got to hear it about 12 when I have to write these things. i got to keep going it over and over and over in my mind and in my heart and trying to figure out what to do with this. And so... How is our worship? How is your worship when it feels like Jesus isn't answering your prayers? Or, how, or he, he allows something to happen that is so difficult for you to endure that you don't feel like you deserve because you've served him faithfully your whole life. Your whole family has. You've brought people to know him. And now, God, this is, this is what I get in return as if he owes us something. 
More than the cross that he already gave, right? This is the whole point. We move past the cross and the thankfulness and gratefulness of what he's already done and that we don't have to go to hell and we're now fixated on, but I need more now. I need you to do what I know you can do. I've seen you do it. I've seen you feed the 5,000. I know you can do it. So you need to do this for me now. And it becomes very selfish in our, I'm not even gonna go to church anymore. I'm not even even gonna utter his name. I'm not even gonna read his word. I'm not gonna go worship him or I'm not gonna give any money towards anything. Why would I do that? He didn't do what I wanted him to do when I wanted him to do it. It's because your worship about Jesus and with Jesus is you just want something from him. You don't want him. And it's, it's very convicting because we get to, the, we are very human. And so the tendency to be like these people, is, it's still inside of us. I'm not saying that those moments aren't hard, aren't difficult, that they don't cause uh, just frustration, anger, uh, discontentment, um, confusion, all those things, absolutely they do. And there's times for us to grieve and mourn and go to counseling and try to work through all of this. But if our relationship is not with Jesus because of just Jesus, then when these moments happen, we will go the other way because we're not getting what we wanted. And that's what our relationship with him is based on, just getting what we want. And it's a very superficial relationship and it'll never last. Jesus is trying to say, listen, if you'll just, you have no clue. You live on this earth, this world. You think that it, you know, all you can think, you can't think past the bread right now. You're so hungry. You can't think past the water. You're so thirsty. You don't realize that if, it would, if you would have a relationship with me, that stuff is meaningless. It, it's meaningless. I'm telling you, one day's coming. This, and that's why all through scripture, you read the whole thing. It's quick. We're here today, gone tomorrow. We don't know what tomorrow brings. Don't worry about it. Jesus constantly is trying to preach this narrative to us that, Quit getting so overwhelmed with the physical stuff of this world. Understand who I am, what I've offered, what I've done. And no, you can't earn it. Quit trying to earn it. It ain't going to work. Just place your faith, hope, and trust completely and solely in me. And I promise you, and he just said it earlier, that when you die, I'll raise you up. I'll raise you up and you'll, you'll walk into a new place that you'll go, oh, now I get it. I'm so sorry I was so upset. I'm so sorry I was thinking that that was such a big deal. I'm so sorry I wanted to be on that ridiculous, nasty earth. This is so much better. Thank you for getting me out when you did. I mean, your, your tune changes. Your, your perspective changes. Paul's so big on this, and I ain't got time to go into it. Man, focus on the things above, not on the earthly things. This earth has nothing to offer you that's any com- way comparable to what is to come. And, and this is what we should be grateful and thankful for, not just... But God, I want this, and I want this, and you didn't give me this, and I know you can do it, so why aren't you doing it again? And it's like, you're so over here all the time, you don't, you're not even thankful, truly thankful, because you won't even, you spent five minutes thanking me for the prayer I've already answered, and here you are, the last year of your life, honing in on this, all you do is ask, 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 ask. You didn't, I'm not gonna, we gotta keep moving. Here we go. Verses 43 through 52 Um, I want you to think about all that stuff. Let's read forward though. Stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them and I will raise them up in the last day. There it is again. 
It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard the Father and learned from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. Very truly, I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So now again, it spiraled out of control. The point there, it says argued sharply. They're they're, they're yelling at each other they, they don't, because they don't understand what Jesus is saying. They certainly don't agree with what Jesus is saying. And now Jesus is going to go even further here with this truth that it's, it's, only, it's only through his flesh and blood that we are saved. We just celebrated it through communion and being grateful and thankful for that. He's going to go further here. And in these next verses that we're going to read, even to this day, right now, 2024, a very different interpretation of what Jesus says here is, is a belief of, of other religions, especially, um, specifically the Catholic Church, and I'll address it in just a minute. Um, but let's read what Jesus says first, and then we'll kind of, we'll, we'll talk about it. It says, this is 53 through 59. Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of, uh, of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have, no li- you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. Just as the Father, as as the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father. So the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. So, Quickly, the Catholic Church takes this particular um, scripture, for instance, they, they believe in something that's called transubstantiation. It's a big word that basically, if you come from the Catholic background, you know this, you, you, you grew up in this, or maybe you were a part of this, but um, they believe that, um, that during communion, when the, the priest blesses the, the, what is the wine and the bread, that it literally turns into... Uh, the the bread and blo- or the the body and blood of Jesus. So when you consume it, you're actually consuming um, when you ingest that the the actual body and blood of Jesus. That it turns into that. That's the transubstantiation um, belief. We do not believe that here. We do not teach that here. We believe that the juice and the bread is symbolic of Jesus's body and blood. We believe that Jesus is using terminology here. That's very. He's using the terminology because he, we have to understand how important this point is that he's making, what he's trying to get across, which is also very consistent with Jesus. Again, you don't want to pull out a few verses. You want to look at, has Jesus ever taught something like this before that I could kind of relate to and say, okay, I understand that's the way Jesus taught things. Absolutely. You can go to Matthew chapter five. You can see where Jesus is talking about, he's trying to explain how to live a holy life. And he says, listen, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. If your hand causes you to sin, your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If, that, if Jesus was being literal about that, we would all be walking around with eye patches and nubs, right? Because that's, that's just all of us, right? We've all sinned. We're not doing that because we don't take it literally because you know, Jesus was not meaning it literally. He was making a point of the seriousness of living a holy life. Same thing here. 
He is communicating this in a way to stress the importance that without his death on the cross and shedding of his blood for our sin and us placing our faith completely in him, there would be no way for us to be saved. And he gives us this, he even gives us more reassurance in in the verses that follow, verses 60 through 63. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching, who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I've spoken to you, here it is, he says, they're full of spirit and life. So he confirms here the words he speaks are of the Spirit, not literal. They are a spiritual meaning, and and the spiritual meaning is there's only one way for us to be saved, and that's through Jesus Christ. Amen? Jesus is calling for a commitment to go all in, just as he did on the cross. Christianity is about complete surrender. You're, You're not a true follower of Jesus unless you are willing to let him be Lord of all of your life, because that's what Jesus requires You have to understand, you have to read all of it and understand what Jesus has called us to. Being a Christian is not easy. He's either Lord of all or not Lord at all. That's our choice. That's the choice he gives us. Not here, necessarily. It is, but it's even plainer in other places in Scripture. And these people who were just marveling over him the day before, they're now done with him once they realize that this is what he's calling them to, that this has just gone too far for them. And so verses 66 through 68 From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave me too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. So the twelve stay. They believe. They want to follow. The others that are referred to as the disciples here are meaning because they were following him. Anytime you followed a rabbi, you were considered his disciples, you're learning. They weren't, but it wasn't the 12 that left him. It was many of these others. They're out. They're done. And it's always been interesting to me that when crowds got really big around Jesus, he seemed to get leery. And he would tend to get very direct with his words and what it meant and what it looked like to follow him. And I think that was very intentional because he knew what it meant to follow him and that there was no way that all these people were going to be willing to give their life away and follow him. And he made it clear. And when he did, the crowds tended to thin out. Jesus was never about crowds. He was about commitment, service, and love. And I'm going to be honest with you again here that this is why it's so hard as a pastor when you have a church that's growing and a church that grows to a certain size, it's hard not to think have I communicated it clearly what it means to follow Jesus? I, I can remember there was a year, I don't know if Tommy remembers this because and Julie, it was, it was way back, but there was a year where we just had ridiculous amounts of baptisms. And it was like, holy cow. It's like, I don't know if I should be excited because I remember how many it was now, 60 some baptisms, I think, that year. And it was like, what? are we communicating this correctly? Like, is it really this many people that want to die to themselves and live for Jesus? Because this is a big commitment. Are we communicating this clearly? The gospel clearly, and are we teaching it clearly that what it looks like to follow Jesus because it's anything but easy. And the true gospel is humbling. And I think the best question you and I can ask ourselves every Sunday as we come together 
in this place is, am I here to seek the face of God or the hand of God? Am I here to seek the face of God or am I here to seek the hand of God? In our own personal walk with the Lord, are we seeking Jesus and a relationship with him or are we simply seeking what he can give us? Are we worshipers or consumers? Are we more about serving the Lord and others or are we about getting served? Many of you will never have to probably experience it, but if you ever become part of a church to the point where you're in leadership of some kind or you are on staff at a church somewhere, you'll, you, you end up dealing with a lot of this, a lot of people who want to be served. And it's so ironic because the Jesus that they're claiming to follow is not about that at all. It's about serving. But they gripe and they complain. You don't, you know, you, they need, they need, they need. You should have done this. You should have said this. You don't like me about this. You don't, I want this. I need this. And you're like, wait a minute. If, shouldn't your eyes be off of you and somewhere else? You know, we, and so you, it's very difficult at times to shepherd and love and, and try to point people in the right direction. Because sometimes I feel like we're here more for the hand of God and what we can get and what people can give us. And that's what I mean by, as a pastor, you wonder, like, have we made church too comfortable, too fun, that people just want to come and hang out? I don't know the answer to that. All I know is we've got to keep preaching the gospel and making sure we're clear what the gospel message is and what it looks like to follow Jesus. Way out of time. I know that. We have so much already to think about from this chapter. My prayer is that we will dwell on these questions and that dwelling on them will then move us, right? Will move us spiritually, whether that is to repentance or forgiveness or to obedience. Whatever way, my prayer is that we will listen to what the Holy Spirit is telling us and then that we would respond in obedience to him. We have got to let the word of God move us. I pray that that's what will happen as we think about these things. I want to pray, and then we're going to offer an invitation this morning.